We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Don Alanto. Don Palumbo. Hello. That, did, did that one take longer than usual? It did. I, I actually wrote, what, it... I wrote two sentences, actually, in the time that you, you did that. You're um, a fast writer. I, I am. Yeah, yeah, I am. So a big, big thanks to everyone who's here with us yeah, tonight. Big one, a big our thanks. first time in, in Moorhead and our first time at Swing Barrel Brewing here in Moorhead, Minnesota. So thanks we're really for excited. Having us. Pretty yeah. cool place. Thanks to everyone for being here with us tonight, and a big thanks to everyone who takes a little bit of time out of their busy lives to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes or Spotify, or just to give us a share on social media and tell a friend about us. The comments, the feedback, and that that support it goes a long way, and we we love to hear about it. So Don, I'm I'm kind of curious. Can you help me out? What are folks saying about Midwest murder these days? I hope it's all good. I, I don't know if it's all good. And I, I love it when he um, when he does like slide a bad one in there and I'm reading it for the first time when it's live. And I'm like, oh, they happen. Oh, that hurts. OK, well, and then it's I and then. The package. Yeah. And then he maybe has to Jonah me out because I've said something icky. But anyway, so Chelsea Ray G five stars true crime with a Midwest twist. I'm a big true crime podcast fan. And this one did not disappoint. Solid research, entertaining banter, and chilling and interesting stories. Looking forward to more, Don and Jonah. Thank nice. You. I like it. Yeah. We, were, we were discussing our banter on the way here because some people love the banter, some people hate the banter, and, uh, I, you know, I, we are who we are, I guess, right? Yeah. Meecee05, M-E-E-C-I-E. She's going to take a star away if I didn't pronounce that properly. Uh, four stars. Great show. I love the informational detail, which is much better than other true crime podcasts. Um, thank you. Nice. And that's pretty nice. The only suggestion I have is that too, that many times the personal interjections. Oh, see? Yeah. I, saw, I set you up, man. <laughs> well, you didn't you even did. Know I didn't coming. even know it because I haven't. You, I think we all know I haven't read this. Yeah. So I, I, many times the personal interjections by the host go, go, goes on too long and I fast forward through them to get back to the story. Don't bury the lead. Fair. Noted. And then e- emoji with shades. Yeah. So that's that's part of the review too. It is, I, you know, and, and it's a tale of two worlds here. It, it is, it is. I, you know, I just don't, I just don't know. I'm going to start to question my existence if I start questioning it too question much, everything. and I just, I don't know. I, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Okay. It's, a, it's part of it. We appreciate you guys. Yeah. And, and thanks for sharing. We like we like showing that part. And you can stay current with Midwest Murder live events and special announcements by following us on Facebook and Instagram. It's pretty easy. And you can choose to support the show financially at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Midwest Murder. And we also have merchandise available at tpublic.com slash stores slash Midwest Murder. And I finally actually I added that link 
to the store on our Facebook. So I made it oh, easy for good. people. That's a good one. Like a month after we've gotten it. It's like, right. hey, if you, maybe if it you, would just be easier if people could click something on our Facebook to get there. I feel like that's been scientifically proven. Yeah. Um, so, but, and it's super weird if you go to T Public and search Midwest murder, it actually, we're buried you, in there. You can't, you can't find it. It's like we're on Etsy. page 72. Yeah. Oh, wow. Right. You, it's way in. Yeah. Yeah. I clicked all the way. Most of us haven't been two pages deep on a Google search in our life at no, this point. It's, so yeah, it's not worth my time if I have to go to the second page. And so <laughs> just go directly because we have fun shirts on there. And actually speaking of that, if you, if, uh, if a, we say something a lot on the show, feel free to throw it at us because you know, it's a, it's a catchphrase, right? Uh, that's how my favorite one came about, which was the, uh, nothing good happens after midnight or no, the only thing open after midnight are legs in hospitals. That's my favorite. Um, and, uh, and, and then, you know, came for the Midwest, stayed for the murder. That was a fan, that was a fan suggestion, fan submission. you know? So if you have, if you have something like that, let us know. Yeah. We're receptive to those yeah. things. Yeah. Thank you. Today, we're heading back to 1989 and the foremost story of the year happened on November 9th when the Berlin Wall was torn down, ultimately leading to the reunification of East and West Germany. Also in 1989, Nintendo released the Game Boy, forever changing the landscape of handheld devices. Serial killer Ted Bundy is executed in Florida's electric chair. The Mirage Hotel and Casino opens in Las Vegas as the first huge resort hotel. The Phillips 76 chemical complex in Houston, Texas has a series of explosions and fires killing 23 employees. In 1989, the Supreme Court ruled that flag burning during political protests is an act of free speech. The first GPS satellites went into orbit. I I thought that one was really really cool. And it was only like a couple dozen of them. It wasn't hundreds. So the first GPS satellites, 1989. Hmm. You're going to love this one, Don. I bet. 17 Magazine invented the term freshman 15 in 1989, even though research shows it's more of a freshman five. And who do you think they targeted that at, Don Palumbo? And if you can cover Isla's ears, and I don't typically say this very often, but, you know, fuck those guys. Like, they're like, they're, they're the ones that, that started the whole thing with, you know, body dysmorphia and like, thank you, 17 magazine. Thank you, assholes. Like, that's great. We appreciate it. In 1989, Douglas Wilder won the first gov- the governor's seat in Virginia, becoming the first black man elected governor in the U.S. I'm sorry, what year was this? 1989. Oh, oh okay. Just the first text ever was sent using a Motorola beeper. Motorola is not even like a brand anymore. My, the dad, Simpsons, my, my dad still carries around a Motorola razor. Does he really does he it does. work? It does. It's weird. The Simpsons, Seinfeld, and Baywatch premiered. And Batman, starring Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, and Kim Basinger, directed by Tim Burton, was the highest grossing film of 1989, followed closely by Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Lethal Weapon 2, and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Classic. Yeah, it was a big time classic. Our story begins in Strasburg, Ohio. Our first time in Ohio, yes? First time. First time visiting Ohio. It's a rural village in northeastern Ohio, roughly an hour and 20 minutes from the borders of Pennsylvania and West Virginia. It's part of Tuscarawas County, a forested area well known for its fertile hunting and fishing grounds. Perhaps a little known fact about Ohio is that it's home to the United States' largest population of Amish. They're mostly spread across several countries in the region, including Tuscarawas. It's considered a safe area where folks who want to live a slower life can work, 
raise a family, and enjoy the great outdoors. Donald Welling is one such resident, a hardworking truck driver who loves to fish and hunt when he's not on the road, a sports enthusiast, active in softball, semi-professional football, and weightlifting. Donald is a regular face known to all his neighbors for the long runs and walks he enjoys down County Road 94 each morning. On Saturday, April 1st, 1989, Donald Welling wasn't alone during his morning run down County Road 94. As Donald ran, another man, drunk on beer, roamed the Ohio countryside searching for another family pet to shoot with his 30 caliber rifle. If not a family pet, maybe this time a bigger target. The killer was slowly driving along, lost in his own sociopathic thoughts, when he saw Donald Welling and the voice in his head spoke up. Open fire on him. When Donald Welling saw the approaching vehicle slow down and stop about 10 feet away, he did what just about any Midwesterner would do, and he offered a greeting. What's up, said Welling. Welling's polite gesture was answered with a 30 caliber rifle round. It ripped through the right side of Welling's body, fatally piercing his heart before lodging inside the left side of Welling's chest. Just one and a half miles from the place he called home, Welling's body was discovered within just a few hours. The coroner's report and investigation quickly determined foul play was involved, but there were absolutely no clues, leads, witnesses, or trace evidence to be found. It was a senseless, predatory murder without motive, serving only a need, desire, and intent to kill. The void left behind by the loss of their son and the lack of answers in the wake of his death was devastating for Donald Welling's family and the Strasburg community. In the weeks following his death, the Strasburg High School, Welling's alma mater, dedicated its football goalposts in his name. So how, how old was he about? Welling was in his 30s. Oh, okay. In the meantime, Donald Welling's killer went home to his family, had a Sunday night supper date, said goodnight to his kid, slept in the same bed as his wife, and went to work on Monday morning, just like every other average Joe. The killer later said, quote, This guy was just trying to be friendly, and he blew, you know, I, I killed him. It wasn't premeditated. I told you guys that. Just, I was just driving along and came upon him, and, and that's it. Welling, and just, I heard a voice in my head, said, Open fire on him. And I did, and in 10 seconds from the, the time I heard that voice till I shot him and killed him. 21-year-old Jamie Paxton started the day with breakfast and donuts at his parents' home early in the morning of November 10th, 1990. Bow hunting season was just beginning, and if Jamie's excitement wasn't previously clear, it became obvious when he quickly scarfed breakfast and ran out the door before the sun finished rising. With his crossbow packed and ready, Jamie drove to the Consolidation Coal Company strip mine about eight miles from his family home in Bannock. He parked his car, left it unlocked with keys in the ignition, and hiked up a grassy hill in search of a good spot to tag his deer. Jean, Jamie's mother, expected the young man home by mid-afternoon at the latest. When he didn't show up, 
Jean Paxton felt excitement for her son, expecting his hunt was successful, anticipating a joyous return home with a buck. At 2.40 p.m., Jean Paxton was doing household chores when she looked up to see a sheriff's car pull into the driveway. Her heart sank, a feeling of grief and devastation that has never gone away. Unfortunately for the Paxton family, young Jamie Paxton's body, clad in camouflage, was discovered by hunters in the clearing of a wooded area that afternoon around 2 p.m. Jamie Paxton was shot three times with a high-caliber rifle, once in the left buttock and once in the right knee. Investigators theorize he was fleeing when the second shot took him down. The final shot took him in the chest, piercing his right lung. He died from blood loss as a result of that wound. Jamie Paxton was well-known and liked by everyone in the tight-knit community, and he never had an enemy in his life. Hunting accidents weren't entirely uncommon in the area, but it was clear to law enforcement the death of Jamie Paxton was no accident. Sheriff Tom McCourt knew better, quote, When we saw more than one wound, we knew it could not be an accident. Plus, it was a bullet wound rather than an arrow, and the gun season was not in yet. Jamie Paxton, while scouting for a buck worthy of his bow tag, was himself hunted and killed. His murderer left behind no discernible clues. Police were at a total loss and found no answers or motives after interviewing friends and family of the 21-year-old hunter. Some folks were even polygraphed. Still, nothing. So, I mean, this guy is, this guy is well, at this point they haven't connected, right? Nothing. Okay. No, no connection. In the weeks following her son's death, Jean Paxton was consumed by the inexplicable randomness of her son's killing often wondering if her son had any last words. She found a shred of comfort in her faith, believing God protected Jamie from the pain of those final moments. She envisioned what Jamie's killer might look like and wondered how anyone could simply be out there living with the knowledge that they took her son's life. As the investigation floundered from lack of motive, suspect, or any evidence whatsoever, Gene Paxton did something investigators said was unlikely to have any significant impact. She started sending letters to the killer via the Martin's Ferry Times Leader newspaper saying, quote, To the murderer of my son, Jamie, would it be easier for you if I wrote words of hate? I can't because I don't feel hate. I feel deep sorrow at losing my son. You took a light from my life November 10th and left me with many days of darkness. Have you thought of your own death? Unless you confess your sin and ask for God's forgiveness, you will face the fire and fury of hell. When you are caught, I will be sorry for your family. They will have to carry the burden of your guilt all their lives. How? Whoa. And so the, the paper is, is then printing these. So this was... Yes. The letter came and went without reply. The murder of Jamie Paxton wasn't the only tragedy to befall the Ohio hunting region that season. On November 28, 1990, in rural Muskingum County, a visiting hunter from Massachusetts, 30-year-old Kevin Loring, was reported missing 
when he failed to meet back with relatives after a hunt. Kevin Loring, along with his father-in-law and uncle, traveled together annually for a big hunt in the days after Thanksgiving. On the morning of November 28th, the three men grabbed a coffee and donuts at a little bakery in the town of Frasiesburg before heading toward Dresden to hunt their deer. After lunch, the group agreed to give it a few more hours, but parted ways. Kevin went one way, his father-in-law and uncle went another. The latter two men heard a single gunshot at around 1.30 p.m. It struck them as odd that a hunter would shoot only once. Not long after hearing the gunshot, the brothers returned to their vehicle. By 3.30, when Loring didn't show up, the eerie feeling from the single gunshot gave way to outright concern for Kevin. It wasn't like him to leave anyone waiting. Kevin was officially reported missing at 4.45 p.m. A small search party was quickly formed, but finally called off at midnight, resolving to come back at dawn with a larger group and aerial support. Kevin Loring's body was spotted by searchers in an airplane from the Civil Air Patrol on Thursday, November 29th. His head was obliterated by a single gunshot to the face. Kevin's Remington 20-gauge semi-automatic shotgun was found with four bullets. Leading Sheriff Bernie Gibson to make the determination that Kevin Loring accidentally shot himself while treading the thick brush forest. Deputy Gibson believed most of these guns held five bullets. This type of accident wasn't unheard of in the area. That was the story passed along to the family of Kevin Loring on the morning of Friday, November 30th, that his death was an accident. Detectives, however, weren't convinced, and they had the Remington shotgun evaluated by a local weaponsmith. The weaponsmith confirmed Kevin Loring's weapon had not been fired. His death might have been accidental, but it wasn't accidentally self-inflicted. So I, I imagine at this time they're looking pretty hard then at his buddies. They're looking well, it, everywhere well, I guess, I guess they at anybody can. really, right? Yeah. And and well, and his two buddies, which is his father-in-law and right. uncle, right? Yeah. Well, so they they members. alibi each other, quote unquote, and mm-hmm. reported it. So, yeah, it was the first time Kevin Loring hunted Ohio. He usually traveled up to Maine or Massachusetts. And Kevin's death was painfully difficult for his children, ages 8, 4, and 2. Kevin Loring's youngest child turned 3 the Sunday following his untimely death. And there was no party or candles that year. Only grief. As his wife and children were coming to terms with the reality of Kevin's death, the haunting tragedy took an unexpected turn when police told his family that Kevin didn't shoot himself. Loring must have been accidentally shot by another hunter who got spooked and fled the scene. Quote, It was a nightmare hearing it all over again, said Mrs. Loring. I'm kind of relieved knowing that he did not do it himself. I cannot believe that someone would shoot my husband and just leave him there. She pleaded with his killer to step forward, and it was the only thing investigators could hope for. 
There were no leads or clues, and the death was recognized as the first of its kind during the 1991 Ohio hunting season. Detectives didn't believe there was any foul play involved. However, there was no doubt in their mind that whoever shot Kevin Loring knew they did it. Kevin Loring's killer in the months following his death went so far as to plan a family vacation to Massachusetts near the victim's home. This twisted hunter of humans went to the Plymouth Library, looked up Loring's information on microfilm, and found out everything he wanted to know, where Loring lived, went to school, as well as Kevin Loring's final resting place, so he could pay it a visit. So at this point, we're, we're dealing with not a sociopath, we're dealing with a psychopath. Yeah. Because there, there is, there's, and please, somebody don't come at me for dumbing something down. But I you think can be we, both, but, but he's right. For but sure. I mean, there's a difference between a sociopath and a psychopath, and 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 we we use those terms interchangeably. I think you know. So it's, I mean, yikes. Yeah. Police made no connection between the previous killings and the death of Kevin Loring. Loring's death was deemed an accident. Loring's killer later described the murder. Quote. I shot him right between the eyes. His hat blew straight up about 20 feet. I knew I, I had to blow his whole head off. The shot was taken from about 75 feet away. So absolutely no conscience, no sympathy, empathy, nothing whatsoever. No remorse. The rest of hunting season went by without incident. Sometime around Easter of 1991, Jamie Paxton's family built a small memorial of flowers, a cross, and a tree at the site of his murder. It was later found destroyed, the tree uprooted from the earth. On August 10th of 1991, an arrest was made that should have set off alarm bells. Game wardens in Pike Township cited a 42-year-old man for illegal target shooting outside a state hunting area. He was charged with improper handling of firearms. A silencer-equipped handgun was also confiscated and turned over to federal authorities. No one knew it at the time, but Ohio's killer of hunters had just fallen into and subsequently slipped out of law enforcement's hands. Meanwhile, Gloria Jean Paxton continued periodically writing to her son's killer, her letter in October 1991 said, quote, It's been nearly a year since you killed my son. Has your life changed in the past 11 months? Our family hasn't lived since last November 10th. We are surviving one day at a time. There is one question on our minds all day long and every time we wake up at night. We want to know why Jamie was killed. Finally, on November 4th, nearly one year to the day of Jamie's murder, the killer sent a letter of his own to the Times Leader newspaper in Martin's Ferry. The letter was promptly turned over to authorities. Here's what it said. Oh, way to build suspense. Take a long drink. I'm like, what? I'm going to click on the letter. Like, what's going on? Sorry. 
on the edge of my seat. Dear editor, I am the murderer of Jamie Paxton. To prove that this is not a crank letter, here are two facts known only to the murderer. One, the weapon used was a 308 bolt-action rifle with 165-grain soft-point bullets. After each shot, I pulled the bolt halfway back and removed the fired case and put it in my pocket. This is why no shell casings were found at the murder site. Two, Paxton was driving a late 1970s Chevy, either beige or light yellow in color, which was parked on the east side of the road headed northbound. One year ago this Sunday, I killed Jamie Paxton. This letter is directed to all concerned with his murder. To Belmont County Sheriff Tom McCourt, don't feel bad about not solving this case. You had no clues of any kind to start your investigation. You could interview till doomsday everyone that Jamie Paxton ever met in his life and you wouldn't have a clue to my identity. The reason? Jamie Paxton was a complete stranger to me. I never saw him before in my life, and he never said a word to me that Saturday. The motive for the murder was this, the murder itself. With no motive, no weapon, and no witnesses, you could not possibly solve this crime. Paxton was killed because of an irresistible compulsion that has taken over my life. I knew when I left my house that day that someone would die by my hand. I just didn't know who or where. This compulsion started with just thoughts about murder and progressed from thoughts to action. I've thought about getting professional help, but how can I ever even approach a mental health professional I just can't blurt out in an interview that I've killed people. Paxton was not the only one. Technically, I meet the definition of a serial killer. Three or more victims with a cooling off period in between. But I'm an average looking person with a family, job, and home just like yourself. Something in my head causes me to turn into a merciless killer with no conscience. Five minutes after I shot Paxton, I was drinking a beer and had blacked out all thoughts of what I had just done out of my mind. I thought no more of shooting Paxton than shooting a bottle at the dump. It's like two people live in my head, one a normal person and the other a heartless killer. I feel no exultation for evading capture for this heinous crime, but only disgust and loathing for myself for joining the ranks of other serial killers like Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and Henry Lee Lucas. To the Paxton family, you deserve to know the details of November 10th, 1990. At about 8.30 a.m., I came upon Jamie on that hill. He was barely visible over the crest of the hill. I was very drunk, and a voice inside of my head said, Do it. I stopped my car behind Jamie's and got out. Jamie started walking slowly down the hill toward the road. He never looked directly at me or said a word to me. He appeared to be looking past me at something in the distance. I was carrying my 308 along my right side where he couldn't see it. I raised the rifle to my shoulder and lined him up in the sights. It took at least five seconds to take careful aim. He never showed any indication of seeing me. 
I aimed a little to my left to allow for him moving from my right to left. My first shot was off a little bit and hit him in the right chest. He groaned and went down. I wanted to make sure he was finished, so I fired a second shot, aimed halfway between his hip and shoulder while he was prone on the ground. I jerked the shot and hit him in the knee. He raised his head six inches off the ground and groaned again. My third shot also missed and hit him in the butt. He never moved again. There were never any shots fired at point-blank range as I was never close than 100 feet to Jamie. The coroner was mistaken about his analysis. I know you hate my guts and rightfully so. I think about Jamie every hour of the day as I'm sure you do. I was at the scene of the crime last Easter about 10 a.m. You must have just missed me. I've also visited Jamie's grave at Union Cemetery. It is a very beautiful sight, and the inscriptions and picture of Jamie on the black headstone are a work of art. I knew before I fired those shots that day that my victims had family and friends, but your son is the only one of my victims I feel pity for. To his fiancée, Diane Verardi, read Christina Rossetti's poem, Remember, when you think of Jamie. So there you have the details. The where, with what, when, and why have all been revealed. The who can never be discovered unless I choose to turn myself in. This would serve no purpose at this time. Clearly, I committed aggravated murder and would be sentenced to death. I knew the difference between right and wrong at the time and was sane. I've had dozens of opportunities since that November day to kill others in Ohio and other states and chose not to. Maybe the disgust my good half felt about the Paxton killing made it dominant over the bad half and want to quit. Stopping my excessive drinking also contributed because when I'm sober, I don't think of killing. Let's all hope that this will be the end of the killing, but at this point, I don't know. I mailed this letter only because I felt the Paxton family should know the details of what happened. I don't believe they should live the rest of their lives without knowing. This is the only correspondence you will ever receive from me. Signed, The Murderer of Jamie Paxton. This guy is... uh, It's a real piece of work. I mean, definitely a psychopath. I mean, there's arrogance. He's baiting. He's he's taunting. like he's taunting, yeah, and then and then continuing the pain, you know, by by giving those gruesome details, as if he's offering compassion, but he's really not. I, I wanted you to have these details so you didn't have to wonder what I did to your son, basically, you know, like this this guy is. I, I'm curious, and I'm not going to ask you, but I'm curious if it actually was the only letter that he ever sent. It was, yes, oh. that's the only one okay. he ever sent. I had I, I had a thought that if. In situations like this, if you could monitor the grave sites of the murdered like 24 7, what, 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 what would the hit ratio be on, on seeing the murderer return? Because this guy has done it now with several of his killings. And it, right. anyways, it creeped me out. This guy's creepy and he's taunting law enforcement and they're clueless. Well, and, and taunting his family too, because here, you know, you, you think that... Well, he thinks he's doing the family a favor by sharing this. But, but you think the, the eternal resting place of their son, right, is, is safe. It's sacred. You know, and, and clearly she's... It's sacred You know, to she's him. got faith, but it's sacred to him. Yeah. And, and it's not safe, you know, because he's going back to it. 
that is uh, the letter was the investigation's first bona fide lead. The hunter got flushed out by a grieving mother's profound love. While this didn't give authorities an immediate arrest, it offered a ton of clues, not the least of which was the fact Ohio authorities were dealing with a serial killer. At this time, nobody throughout Ohio law enforcement had actively connected the killings, and it was a daunting reality for law enforcement. How could they possibly keep an entire region of hunters safe from a psychotic sniper? No amount of warnings would stop people from hunting, and no amount of prayers could stop Jamie Paxton's killer from striking again. Saturday, March 14, 1992. 49-year-old father of four, Claude Hawkins, an enthusiastic and dedicated fisherman, went out for some early morning fishing after his midnight shift at Pittsburgh Plate and Glass Company. And this wasn't uncommon for Claude, so when he didn't return home right away after work or after lunch, his family didn't think much of it. Sheriffs later delivered the tragic news to the Hawkins family that afternoon. His killer later said, quote, I drove by and he waved at me. I heard a voice that day that said, Go back and get him. And I saw him fishing down there. I heard a voice in my head say, Go back and get him. Went down there and killed him. Shot him right in the back. The kind and loving father, well known for his willingness to help others, was shot once in the back with a high-powered rifle while fishing alone at Wills Creek Dam. Claude Hawkins loved the outdoors. He was an amateur recreational photographer who adored his family and worked hard all his life. He was killed in cold blood, simply enjoying something he loved. Claude Hawkins caught two walleyes that morning, found nearby, along with his gear and camera bag. Several key developments occurred as a result of Claude Hawkins' tragic death. The FBI got involved because Claude was murdered on federal land, and a hunch from Coshocton County Chief Deputy Dane Shryock would finally start connecting the dots for the different agencies who were, to this point, individually working on murder investigations in separate Ohio counties. The area surrounding Claude Hawkins' murder was scoured with metal detectors. Agents were on their hands and knees searching for evidence, a shell casing, a footprint, a tire tread, anything. As with previous murder scenes, no evidence was found. Special Agent Harry Trombitis from the FBI field office in Columbus was assigned to the case. He said, quote, We had somebody who was evidence conscious enough to pick up the shell casing after they shot and killed somebody. We were dealing with a different brand of person here. Chief Deputy Shryock sent a teletype to all surrounding counties, which led to specially assigned deputies from each county meeting on March 26, 1992. They compared notes on the deaths. The group included law enforcement from four counties, the Ohio Division of Wildlife, and the FBI. The members of this meeting eventually became part of a much larger interagency task force, and soon concluded the first likely kill was that of Donald Welling back on April 1st, 1989. But as quickly as this newly formed task force 
worked to develop their investigation, a serial killer's lust for more murder developed even more quickly. On March 30th, right under their noses, he was actually indicted on federal weapons charges for possession of the unregistered silencer. A stone-cold killer walked in and out of federal court and the whole of Ohio law enforcement was none the wiser. Undaunted, he struck again on Sunday, April 5th, 1992, just 10 days after the first interagency meeting and five days after his indictment on the federal weapons charges. 44-year-old father of three, Gary Dwayne Bradley, got up early on the morning of April 5th. His wife joined him for a morning chat. When Gary's fishing buddy didn't show up, she went back to bed and Gary decided to go alone. He came into the bedroom to let his wife know he was leaving. Be careful, were the final words Beth Bradley ever said to her husband. Later that morning, Beth took their sons, ages 5 and 6, to a neighbor's house to visit. It was just after 1.30 when she started to feel worried. It wasn't like Gary to be gone so long. No sooner did that thought cross her mind than a family friend came running in with terrible news. Gary was found dead. Shot twice in the back while fishing at Central Ohio Coal Company Pond in Noble County, about 10 miles west of Caldwell. That night, when Beth Bradley tucked her sons into bed, they didn't understand where dad was and kept asking her about him. Why were so many relatives and neighbors at the house? Your daddy has been shot, she told him. A bad man killed him, and he won't be coming home anymore. Oh, but, like I can't, I can't imagine telling my young children that, that news. And I mean, I, I, I can't imagine the entire situation, but brutal. Like, can I mean, can you imagine? I think, and I think where where it hits me is is putting myself in that situation, right? Me being that one. And, and, and that's, that's where. And I want to give a shout out to law enforcement in this one. During the research of this particular story, it just dawned on me how often they have to deliver the worst kind of news. And certainly law enforcement gets plenty of shit and they probably deserve that. But my goodness, my, my goodness, they have to deliver. This is several times now when some poor family has been delivered the worst news by a deputy. And let me tell you, that deputy didn't feel any better about having to bring that news to some poor family. And it's, man, my heart goes out to all of them. And it, as close as I was to, to law enforcement, I, that's one of the, one of the hardest things for, uh, for them to do. And I don't know, I don't know how they do it. Authorities knew their serial killer struck again. In the weeks following the death of Gary Bradley, a secret five-county federal and local task force became official, a deep analysis of these five murders as well as other unsolved similar murders and hunting accidents was conducted. Furthermore, all the available data was given to the FBI's Behavioral Science Division in Quantico, Virginia. The three-person team from the Behavioral Analysis Unit produced a profile of the killer. Here are the highlights. And Hang on. I'm going to give a shout-out to my, maybe my future ex-husband, John Douglas. Johnny D. Who, yeah. could, who could maybe be my grandpa, but that's cool. Yeah. Sorry. I, it's fine. I'm okay with that. He's cool. It's good. 
we'd have great conversations. Except I'd worry that he was judging me all the time. For sure. Like, he'd be a, he, when I, his brain is probably yeah. in constant analysis. I know. So here are the highlights, lowlights, however you want to look at it, of, of this serial killer from the three-person FBI team, which they, for whatever reason, they, they didn't name him by name, but that's, he was in the team. That's the only team at this point. So I don't, I, I found that weird, like he, don't attach my name to this, just give it all the credit to the behavioral science division. The serial killer was a white man at least 30 years of age. He was an avid hunter who owned several weapons. The killer lived within reasonable driving distance from the murders. He's an introvert with above average intelligence. He is likely to resolve problems in a cowardly fashion. He might have a drinking problem and engage in obscene phone calls. Vandalism, such as shooting out windows or vehicle tires or arson. And this is a person who will take extreme pleasure in killing animals. Although the task force worked tirelessly to develop leads from the combined data, and even with the FBI profile in hand, heading into the summer of 1992, there was still no suspect. On July 30th, 1992, which would have been Jamie Paxton's 23rd birthday, Jean Paxton sent another letter to the paper. She described how she baked her son's favorite cake that day. Quote, but Jamie wasn't there to enjoy it. There's a small child in our family whose biggest worry was who's going to blow out the candles on Jamie's cake. The next time there's a birthday party in your family, I hope you think of the cake on our table and know you are the reason Jamie wasn't there to blow out the candles. She wasn't messing around. I mean, she she kind of came to fight, which, right? I mean, she had every right to. That's not what I'm. That's not what I'm saying. But like this woman, wow. what she did is wow. Because it, 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 he was. Is, I mean, he was really the only one that he felt remorse for, yeah. a little bit. That's I it. Mean, Admittedly, wow, that is. By mid August, when Gloria Jean Paxton's letter didn't attract another response from the serial killer, the task force finally decided to go public with everything they had. Frankly, at this point, it wasn't only a matter of public safety, but law enforcement needed to generate leads in the form of tips from the public. And tips poured in by the hundreds, and every single lead was pursued by agents from each respective region the lead came from. And by process of elimination, the task force worked to confirm alibis, schedules, and whereabouts of dozens and dozens of potential suspects. On August 11th, when Richard Fry initially read the stories of this lone killer in the newspapers, it sort of reminded him of someone he used to hunt with. A week later, he caught the entire available story on a television crime news show along with the FBI profile. Now, he felt uneasy, and after several more days of toiling over the decision, Richard Fry finally called the FBI tip line. Nobody answered, so he left a message. The FBI didn't call back. But Richard Fry was ready to tell his story, and he persisted. On August 26th, Richard Fry made contact with Detective Sergeant Walter Wilson of the Tuscarawas County Sheriff's Department. Detective Wilson 
work this case since the murder of Donald Welling three years prior. Fry was insistent that he speak with Detective Wilson in person, but he was too nervous to come into the station, so the two men met off-site at a private location. Detective Wilson had pursued so many dead-end leads by now, he wasn't entirely convinced by Richard Fry's story. Fry claimed he had a friend who killed animals all the time when they hunted together throughout the 70s. At first, it was stray and diseased dogs and rats at a remote dump site. But then it elevated to animals who were obviously family pets. It was the main reason Richard Fry stopped hunting with the man and broke off their friendship. The two didn't speak much throughout most of the 80s, but recently reconnected at the, at the Ohio Gun Collectors Association Members Only Gun Show. The events were held several times a year, and it was something his friends said during those drives to the event that made Richard Fry's hair stand on end. Do you realize you can go out into the country and find somebody, and there are no witnesses? You can shoot them. There is no motive. Do you realize how easy murder would be to get away with? During a trip to another gun show, while the two were discussing Florida serial killer Ted Bundy, his buddy asked an even more disturbing question. Do you think I've ever killed somebody? This this guy, it's I mean, it's not like you've Want got a road a, trip with this one, Don. Well, it's not like you've got a like a secret girlfriend where you're just yeah. like dying to tell your buddy about this, you know, like yuck, man. This is like these are human beings. Gives me the willies. Ugh. Well, well done, Mr. Fry. The oh. name of Richard Fry's friend was Thomas Lee Dillon. Richard Fry's stories creeped him out. But Detective Wilson wasn't getting his hopes up. By now, the task force had heard similar stories about other crazy hunters, and none of those panned out. When Wilson followed up with the lead, he didn't find much on the surface of Thomas Lee Dillon's life. Dillon's career as an engineer technician and draftsman for the Canton City Water Department was completely untarnished. And aside from the recent issue with the unregistered silencer... Dylan's criminal record was non-existent. He was married with one child, a son. Detective Wilson and the interagency task force went deeper, gradually trekking their way into the twisted hellscape of Thomas Lee Dillon's life. A sickening, almost lifelong career of animal slaughter, vandalism, arson, and terrorizing that eventually culminated in serial murder. Wilson began following Dylan alone as task force agents interviewed people close to him, including Dylan's neighbors, co-workers, and former friends. Dylan was intensely fascinated with guns. The more they learned, the more Wilson became certain Dylan was the killer. One co-worker who knew Dylan for 20 years said Dylan's nickname was Killer at work because he often bragged about shooting dogs and cats. The co-worker... Oh, oh, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Yeah, like, that's, that's, that's his... That's what he's bringing to the conversational table. Animal murder, pet like, murder. There, there's a guy I know that they call him Killer because his last name is Killian. 
right? So that checks out. But, oh, hey, you kill dogs and cats. Hey, killer. Never mind what? Tom. He just likes to shoot German shepherds. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's real. Well, let's, yeah, let's sounds, call him killer and fun. Let's call him go killer. about our He's day. Totally okay. Let me, like, newsflash, guys. If somebody's out there bragging about killing animals, holy shit, red flag. Okay? I, would, I would maybe go the other way. <laughs> that's not like, clear anymore. Red and, flag. And for the love of 20 God. 20 years, this guy's been bragging about it to his employee co-workers. Don't, don't, well, don't give the guy a nickname because it makes him sound cool. Oh, my oh, God. He, he loved it. He, he would, he would course, walk away. Of course, away he nearly just, gave it to himself. Yeah. He'd walk away just laughing, thinking it was hilarious, not understanding why nobody else was laughing at how psychotic he was. The coworker and a second employee described Dylan as a loner who didn't have a good relationship with his wife. Well, and okay. And then I'm also going to interject there. This is where I've become chatty, apparently. Uh, he was a loner. Well, duh. I mean, who wants to be friends with that guy? With cat killer guy. Yeah. No. Yeah. Stay yeah. away from me, creep. Oh, my gosh. Actually, I'm going to call the cops on you. You're freaking me out. Just- <laughs> right. Dylan also kept maps on his table and filing cabinet of many of the east central Ohio counties where the murders occurred, and his vacation time matched that of the killings. His closest friends, if you could call them that, said they never heard Dylan mention love and his wife in the same sentence. After a brief scuffle back in the 70s with another group of rowdy teenagers, Dylan opened fire on someone, but he missed and hit a window. His friends confronted him and he said, yeah, I was really trying to shoot that guy. I missed. They voted him out of the friend group. He got voted off their island at that point. So he was out. Another enticing link was established through Dylan's history of firearms purchases. A co-worker with a federal firearms dealer's license sold Dylan 18 weapons over the years, including four 30 caliber type rifles and two Mossers, the same type of rifle used to kill four of the five victims. Wilson continued to follow Dylan throughout the Ohio countryside. Each morning, Dylan stopped to buy a 12 pack of beer and then spent hours driving his 1989 red Toyota pickup into the counties where the killings took place. Sometimes he stopped and randomly shot at road signs and electric meters. It was the murder of a family dog on September 20th, 1992, that finally gave Detective Wilson the evidence he needed to put Thomas Dillon under full-time surveillance. A red Toyota pickup was identified near the spot where the animal was killed. A 25 caliber bullet was removed from the dog, and Richard Fry had told Detective Wilson that Dillon owned a similar gun. Wilson then asked Richard if he could buy the gun from Dylan, and he did. A ballistic oh. match was made on the gun. That was a, a dirty, cool move. I, like, yeah, I agree. Wow. That was, that was, and somewhat like kind of brave on the part of Richard Fry, because Dylan has no idea at this point. He's none the wiser that any of this is coming down on him. After several well, weeks. Well, because he's that narcissistic and, and oh, that yeah. arrogant. You know, the, because I mean, he he taunted in the, in the letter that there's there's no way you'll ever catch me. You know, I kill randomly. You can't catch me. It's well, weird. just hold on. Detective Wilson's like, oh yeah, hold my beer. <laughs> After several weeks of following Dylan alone, Detective Wilson now had enough to get the go ahead for round the clock surveillance. 
Beginning in mid-October, the task force followed Dylan to gun shows and on weekend trips to Belmont, Harrison, Tuscarawas, Holmes, Coshocton, and Carroll counties. Dylan was often seen drinking from sunrise on. Thomas Lee Dillon had no idea he was a suspect, let alone that he was being followed by an entire task force. He continued with his drunken meanderings through the countryside, usually starting his mornings with Budweiser. The areas of rural Ohio that Dillon was driving through were extremely remote, making it a challenge for agents to follow too closely. They lost him several times when the county roads forked. Aerial surveillance was eventually brought in. On November 8th, the air team watched Thomas Dillon stop, draw his gun, and fire at electric meters on oil well pumps. He shot at stop signs. Another time, he parked next to a car with a for sale sign, got out of his car, picked up a large rock, and threw it through the windshield of the for sale car. It's like a random dick move. The actions were witnessed by the aerial team and confirmed by officers who were trailing Dylan from the ground. On November 11th, task force members lost sight of Dylan on his way home from Belmont County. Later that day, they learned two cows were killed with a crossbow in Tuscarawas County. Richard Fry helped obtain several of Dylan's arrows. The arrows matched those found in the dead cows. I feel like Richard Fry needs a, a medal or like a plaque. Pretty pretty like heroic put his, put his efforts name on the here. Wall. I mean that that's like he's he's just a dude who had a crazy friend and he's like you my know. friend sucks and he's crazy and yeah. yes I will help you get him. Right, right. Which is the right thing to do. It is the right thing to do. You turn in your crazy friends. Like we shouldn't keep them. On November 21st, the team followed Dylan to a gun show in New Philadelphia where he purchased a 22 caliber rifle. The purchase of that gun and a 25 caliber handgun at the show in Cleveland on November 7th was enough to arrest Dylan for violating his plea bargain from the previous silencer charge. But the FBI still had no direct evidence to link him to the killings of the five outdoorsmen. Thomas Dylan was released. I have two things. Every time you say gun show, I want to kiss my biceps. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, when he's like gun show, I'm like, yeah. And I shouldn't, like, I'm, I'm not making light of this. It's just gun show. It's where I go. The, 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 the second thing is, is, and, and what is, what is the actual purpose of, of owning a suppressor or silencer? I mean, it's, it's just for noise muffling, right? right. I mean, to like. To be sneaky, it's to do well, sneaky shit, to feel I mean, cool. Gyrdos? Well, I feel like that's not what it's for. I mean, I think it would be, you know, if, if uh, you know, guns cause a lot of hearing damage, right? Fair. However, You're not going to hunt with a I suppressor. don't know. It just, it just feels weird to me. It's like, it, uh, it's like, no, I was buying this for science. I mean, it, it's, it just, it feels, when we get to Q&A time, if you, if anybody has some input on that, I, I would legit love to hear it. I don't, I'm not, I'm not being a jerk. I'm, I'm, I'm actually curious well, I, of it because I, I have a theory. I jumped to that. Oh, I have a theory. You have a theory. Why do people buy everything? silencers? Because they believe they have a future as a mercenary. It's the only reason why you think you're going to be a merc someday. So you get a silencer. Hmm. Now, so Dylan was arrested for violating his plea bargain. And I'm unsure if after this arrest, Thomas Dillon understood he was a suspect in the killings, and it's unclear if he connected the dots that he was under surveillance. 
It's hard to tell if he was completely oblivious or if he was suspiciously careful because in spite of the heavy surveillance, Thomas Dillon, after being released, attempted to kill Larry Aller in Tuscarawas County, but Dillon missed the shot and Aller escaped injury. The event was completely missed by the task force. And is he just ballsy at this point? I mean, at least go two counties over. <laughs> I, I mean, well, and actually just, well, at first don't do it. But then second, if you're going to do it, like, or are you just baiting at that point? You know, are you just, are, are you so narcissistic and arrogant that it's like, hey, he's not going to catch me. I'm going to stick in the same county. Or he wants, there's a bit of a yeah. catch me if you can. It's a very sure. catch me if you can attitude. Sure. A few days after that, an FBI surveillance plane with Detective Sergeant Wilson was on with Detective Sergeant Wilson on board was following Dylan's red Toyota truck. It was only 9 a.m. and Dylan was already drunk on beer. Just a mile or two ahead of Dylan at a T intersection, Wilson from the plane spotted a female jogger. His stomach tied in knots as Dylan's truck approached behind her. Nobody was close enough to stop what happened next. The jogger got to the intersection and went right. When Dylan stopped at the intersection in his red Toyota, he went left. Worry gave way to relief. Thomas Dylan returned home that day without murdering anyone. Can you imagine being the surveillance team? Like, they, and, and like, what can you, what can you do? Like, what nothing. can you do to stop it? Can't do anything. Zero. If he wanted to kill that woman right there, there was nothing they could do to stop it because the ground team wasn't close enough. Nothing. That was it. Do you suppose at this point he knew that he was being watched? No, oh. I don't think so. I, I, I do not believe so. After the alarmingly close call with the female jogger and with hunting season just days away, the task force decided they couldn't risk any more killings. After almost six weeks of surveillance, Thomas Dillon was arrested as he left a, Tus a Tuscarawas County convenience store on November 27, 1992. His 12-pack of beer went flying as agents moved in on him. At a press conference, they said he was their prime suspect in the Ohio Outdoorsman killings and asked anyone who had sold firearms to Dillon to come forward with potential evidence. After a search of Dillon's residence, his camper, office, safes, garage, and vehicles turned up nothing by way of weapons or any immediately obvious evidence linking Dillon to the murders, the task force was concerned. They were confident Dylan was the killer, but that confidence wouldn't matter without evidence. On December 4th, 1992, a gun dealer from Stark County brought in a Swedish Mauser rifle that Dylan sold to him on April 6th, 1992 at a Massillon gun show the very next day after Gary Bradley was murdered. Ballistics tests confirmed that it was the rifle used to kill Gary Bradley and Claude Hawkins. Thomas Lee Dillon's mother-in-law, Anne Elsis, refused to believe her son-in-law was a murderer. He's a kind and witty man with a yen for guns. She said her family stands behind Dillon 100% and that she wants to be a character witness when he goes to trial. His supervisor wrote, quote, Tom is a dedicated and highly intelligent employee, and these qualities are reflected in his work. He gets along well with other employees, and his attitude is always positive. 
And you know what a supervisor told the prosecutors when they came to ask questions? Uh, they call him killer because I think he's killed some animals. But, I mean, he's a great guy. Great guy. We really like him. He's he does always intelligent positive. work. Man, he's, he's a smart guy. He's a smart, smart guy. One. Killer, but he's smart. Yeah. Like, come on. Maybe Maybe a few dead animals in his trail, but, hey, he does the draft work really well. And it's a tale of two lives. Those who knew the other side of Thomas Dillon shared very different reflections of who he really was. One witness recalled an incident in the 80s when Dillon shot a chipmunk in his backyard. Dillon's son, around six years old at the time, was curious. Thomas Dillon picked the chipmunk up and chased his boy around the yard until the young one tripped and fell. Then... Dylan smashed the bloody chipmunk carcass into his son's face. Okay, well, I mean, at first, like, when he when he was chasing him around, like, I've... I chased I was, my little sister with a snake carcass uh, once. Right, I was, like, I was questioning, I was questioning my, my parenting skills and my aunt skills and all of that for a minute. And then, and then, and then it changed. Yeah. Like, when he, when he then put it got in his, weird. And he smashed it, like, oh. In high school... Thomas Dillon began keeping track of the pets and animals he killed on a calendar. Richard Fry claimed, quote, Dillon seemed to get a physical thrill out of killing. He once used a knife to finish off a wounded groundhog. He was shaking. He was in a wild-eyed frenzy. By the mid-80s, Dylan was regularly boasting that he had over 500 marks on the animal kill calendar. On January 27, 1993, Dylan was indicted on capital murder charges in both cases, Gary Bradley and Claude Hawkins. Prosecutors were seeking the death penalty. In the days following his indictment, Dylan was placed on suicide watch when corrections officers found a noose in his cell. Dylan later told a mental health counselor he intended to use the noose to strangle another inmate. On February 9th, 1993, a hundred spectators gathered outside the Noble County Courthouse as Dylan, handcuffed and in shackles, was escorted inside. The proceeding was short and Dylan pleaded not guilty to murder charges in the deaths of Gary Bradley and Claude Hawkins. Initially, it appeared as though Thomas Lee Dillon might switch to an insanity plea, and psychologist Jeffrey Smalden was hired by the defense to figure out whether Dillon was insane. Smalden came to know the mind of sniper Thomas Dillon better than anyone. Smalden says that Dillon was, quote, very smart, an IQ of around 135 in the superior range of intelligence. But, Smalden says, Dylan was not insane because he knew what he was doing was wrong. Well, he, Quote, he even admitted it. Right, he did in, in his letter. I think he's holding back because he wants to remain a puzzle, Smalden said. He would ask me, have you ever met anyone as complicated as me? Can you understand this? Am, am I, is this behavior as perplexing to you as it is to me? There's never been a crime like this in Ohio, has there? No motive? No contact with the victims? How could you figure that out? And then Dylan would shrug and say, I don't know. What a dick. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm not, like, I, I can't even eloquently say something intelligent there. Because this, this guy is 
He doesn't feel. This is what keeps, this is what keeps me awake at night, right? This is, this is terrifying because these people really exist. It's not a crime of passion. It's nothing like that. This guy is. Most people are killed by someone they know. And in this Mm -hmm. case, this guy is just out there murdering people doing what they love. Because it's a game to him. Smaldon says Dylan was living in a fantasy world of his own creation during his long drives through the Ohio countryside. Quote, he talked on and on about the various fantasy roles that he had envisioned himself in over the years. And they ran the gamut from being president of the United States to being lead singer for the Doors or the Beatles to being brought out of retirement by the Cleveland Browns to lead his team to the Super Bowl. Okay, well, that is a fantasy land because the Browns are never going to win the Super Bowl. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. But they were all linked together by the theme of power, prestige, influence, and grandiosity. A third murder charge was filed against Dylan on May 22nd, 1993 for the death of Jamie Paxton. Before he could be tried for the murders, Dylan placed a call from jail to a WTOV television reporter on July 3rd, 1993 and confessed to the murders. A similar call was also placed to an Akron Beacon Journal reporter. I have major problems. I'm crazy. I want to kill. I want to kill, he said. The following day, Dylan's attorneys put together a plea bargain in which Dylan would confess to all three murders on the guarantee that he would not receive the death penalty and that no further charges would be brought against him, although Authorities now suspected Dylan in as many as 11 deaths over the years. This guy, it's all about control for him. Like he he did it on his own. Like it's 100% about control. Dylan's recorded confession lasted over four hours. And in his confession, he said he took his first victim 13 years earlier. A man sitting at home watching TV. Quote, so this guy with his back to the picture window of his house he was sitting on the sofa so this thought came to me he said stop back up and said shoot this guy so i shot at him through the picture window like i'm judging people's decor not like i don't want to shoot them as i'm walking I'm by. judging their lack of not using a damn blinker right okay well, no but as i'm walking by someone's house like you know taking a walk i'm like oh, you should really hang more stuff on your wall not like, or hmm, I wonder what you're watching or you're totally watching porn, you know, like those yeah. things like, like that would be like, I just don't, I just don't get this mentality. I, I it, it is, it's, it's baffling to me. At one point during the confession, one of the deputies offered some photographs and Dylan was eager to see. Of course he was. He wants to see his shit. He said, do you want to see the autopsy pictures? Just, I want to see them all. Show them all to me. All right. I never saw him in color. What the hell? Okay, we'll show you some pictures. Not the neatest job in the world, was it? Hmm. The shooting and yeah, it's not. No, this autopsy. Jeez. Dirty job, I'll tell you. On July 12th, 1993, Thomas Dillon entered his pleas. He showed no emotion as he answered guilty to each charge. Under the plea agreement, Dylan was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. 
for 165 years, the max sentence. Jamie Paxton's mother, Jean, said she was relieved the case was over. Quote, today is the beginning of the end for Thomas Dillon. She was upset that Dillon showed no remorse. We were given a life sentence the day he decided to kill our son. I think he's a pathetic coward. He's taken the coward's way out of everything. In July of 1993, Thomas Dillon admitted to setting 160 fires and committing other acts of vandalism in eastern Ohio during the preceding five years. Over the course of his life, Dillon claimed to have killed more than 1,000 pets and farm animals. Noble County Sheriff Landon Smith estimated that Dillon's fires caused more than $2 million in damages. Thomas Dillon pleaded with authorities not to be sent to Ohio's toughest facility, the maximum security prison in Lucasville in November 1993. Quote, if I go to Lucasville, I'm a dead man, Dillon I like, said. I like how he, he got him sounding like, like this psychopath that's, you know, smoked a pack of cigarettes for, you know, an hour. And then all of a sudden he sounds like a, you know, like a, like a dunce, you know, where he like, oh, like sorry for me. Where, where, he, can't, where he, can't put a, he can't string a sentence together. Right. You know, like I, I'm, I'm enjoying your voices. That's what I'm saying. Like, when news of this comment reached Jean Paxton, she collected 8,000 names on a petition to send him to Lucasville. And to Lucasville, he was sent. What a what a good lady! Like man, like <sighs> one of the biggest tragedies in life that she had to endure. Oh yeah, but she's like, hmm, well, watch she's, this. She's low key the hero mm-hmm. of this story. Well, and I mean, and Fry guy, Fry and Wilson. There's a yeah. few that deserve yeah. credit, but Dylan wrote to Jean Paxton twice while in prison, offering one thousand dollars to erect a monument where Jamie was killed, or to establish a scholarship in Jamie's name. Gene Paxton said, quote, I told him I didn't need a monument up there to remind me what happened. All he wanted was to glorify himself. And I told him I would never want anyone to receive a scholarship from a murderer. At that point, I wrote to him that we have nothing to talk about. I never heard from him anymore. Can you imagine the poor child that would be awarded that scholarship? Be like, Thanks. Like, I mean, gosh, what an, this guy is, he, I, oh, he's I got nothing. I like, it's awful. Thomas Dillon died from an unspecified illness on October 21st, 2011. He was 61 years old and may his soul never find rest in hell. Sources. The Akron Beacon Journal, stories by Kim McMahon, Cheryl Harris, Jolene Limbacher, The Times Recorder, The Coshocton Tribune, CrimeLibrary.com, and CBSNews.com slash news slash a sniper's mind. Timeline today, PeopleOfHistory.com, TheNumbers.com, and It'sRosie.com. This episode was written by Jonah Lanto and produced by the Good Talk Network. You can support the show Midwest Murder by checking out buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. We also have merch at tpublic.com slash stores slash Midwest Murder. Am I missing anything else, Don Palumbo? Was the unspecified illness like a shank? Oh, like- I, I hope so. No, I, I, I mean, maybe not, but man. You know, like, okay, so 
I was a correctional officer for quite a few years, right? And so they they make these. It's actually the company's Bob Barker. It, I always got a giggle out of it. Um, and the, it they're actually called shankless toothbrushes. And so I feel like, um, and it was as a correctional officer, it's never your job to to uh, you know put forth um, justice, right? That's not your job. You're there to maintain care, custody, and control. However, like I feel like sometimes you you keep some uh, non shankless. Uh, toothbrushes on hand and be like, you should use this one. Slide it you know? over. Right? Like, like I, I, and, and I'm, you know, inmate rights, you know, there, there are rights and privileges. And, and, and again, I, I firmly believe that it's not the, it's, it's not the jailhouse justice that should take care of some or the majority of people. But I think there are a handful of people. They've earned it. They've earned it. Here's, Thomas Dillon. Here's a it. here's a Colgate toothbrush. He this was, one you can absolutely file down. Bob Barker's are over there. You leave those over there. But he was in prison. Fuck that guy. Nearly as long as Jamie Paxson was alive in his life. So Ugh. there you go. It's gut wrenching. That was Midwest murder. And we do again. We appreciate everybody. We appreciate yeah. you guys here at Thank Swing Barrel. All.